As leaders, we can sometimes feel like we're caught between a rock and a hard place, a bit damned if you do and damned if you don't. Whereas one person may see a leadership style as authentic and pure, another may see that same exact approach as dogmatic. We may find ourselves in situations where somebody sees what we're doing as adaptable and agile, and somebody else sees exactly the same thing as deceitful or even manipulative. In this episode of Butt Movers, I get to chat with James McDonald, an education leader and my former boss, about how he's learned to navigate these tensions in order to bring the best possible education for students around the world by recognizing that context is indeed king. Join me on this episode of Butt Movers. I'm here today with James McDonald, who I know well as he was my boss as uh, at NIST International School, where he served as our, our head of school. Um, and NIST is a not-for-profit uh, international school based in Bangkok, Thailand. But that is only one piece of James's resume. He is also one of the founding team members of a, an exciting initiative in education called the Global Citizen Diploma, which we'll explore further. And currently, he is um, overseeing the, a network of schools with GEMS education and has been deeply involved throughout his whole career with the International Baccalaureate. Just to name a few of the things that uh, James McDonald does as an education leader. So welcome, James. Thank you. That was a really nice summary. <laughs> Great. And, and is there anything very else to share with, with us about who you are and, and um, what it is that you're trying to do in the world? No, I think you covered it really nicely. I would add, though, that I'm I'm also a teacher, and I certainly consider myself uh, an educator through and through. That kind of defines who I am in my perspective. So maybe actually that would be a good place to start exploring a little bit. Um, so maybe tell me a little bit about, as an educator and a teacher at your heart, what is the, the kind of teaching and learning and education that you're trying to push for in our world? One thing that I've really come to um, grapple with over the last couple of years, and as we've mentioned at the outset, I'm now working for a big educational group. Previously, my experience was really with some excellent leading international schools that offer the different ID programs. Okay, I just need to interject real quick, because throughout James and my conversation, we as people in the same field often do, spiral into using some common language and acronyms that may not mean anything to those outside of our world. As you just heard him mention there, and you will hear him talk about again, the IB refers to the International Baccalaureate, an organization that offers education for kids ages 3 to 19 through four programs, driven by a mission to create a better world through education. Okay, back to James. But now what I'm realizing is just how big the world of education is and how there are different priorities depending on the type of situation that a student may find themselves in, and that what we may consider a good education at a top-level premium international school may not be accessible in all parts of the world. So I'm not sure you could say what is, what is a great education, because a lot of it depends on what the resources and access to the teachers look like and what you can do for those kids at that time. And it's really a fascinating thing to, for me at least that I've been delving into and grappling with as, as a teacher and as an educator is what's the best we can possibly do for, for students in different contexts. And I think that is something that is relevant for any setting. Because if you're at some of the schools that, and where we work together, 
gosh, we, we pretty much had everything we could we could want. We had fantastic colleagues. Um, we had a great curriculum, excellent excellent facilities, etc. And so I really do think we provided some of the best education anywhere. But that's not the reality for um, millions and millions of children around the world. So what is a, what is a great education? And what what drives me is uh, a bit more contextual now. So you're, in a lot of ways, your scope as an educator has broadened, really looking at the fact that education is a, a fundamental right for all children around the world. And so how do you help to ensure that different kinds of learners in very different contexts can have access to the best possible education within a specific context? Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be really crude and most blunt about it, if you have a situation in um, one of the poorer parts of the world where you don't have access to, to highly educated teachers, et cetera, or maybe even not in a, a formal school, what a good education looks like in that setting and what you can provide for those kids is not going to be the same as what you're going to find at some of the most elite international schools in the world. Right? And you shouldn't try to put one model on another. Might you be able to share with us an example of where you've seen or been involved in a situation where, you know, there, there's a resource constraint and it's still important to say, what can we do? A time where in the face of these constraints, great education is still able to be implemented? One thing, if you look at somewhere like the company I'm working for right now, in terms of education, they're pretty much agnostic when it comes to what curriculum you're going to use and they, they offer education at various um, fee levels. But I can look across the organization I'm in now as an example and say that there is high-quality education being provided at different fee points, but it looks differently. We have more kids in a class at some of the, the cheaper schools, right? You run a different type of curriculum, which is very content-driven, and there's a lot more focus on things like standardized testing and that sort of thing because you're working on developing basic literacies oftentimes ahead of some of those other things you might develop, say, at a B school in a more systematic way. But there's no denying it. There's a high-quality education being delivered. And the but could have been, well, there's not much money. People can't afford, the parents can't afford to pay many fees. But if you actually sit down and you break apart the problem and you say, okay, how can we come up with an education at a different fee point than what you and I were used to, there's a lot of solutions there. And, and that kind of reminds me of the saying, you know, that perfect can be the enemy of the good. This idea that if, if we hold, it's important to have ideals and important to know what is the maybe ultimate vision that we're, we're striving towards. So, you know, a very conceptually based curriculum that's not involving a lot of standardized testing, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, maybe that's what we're striving towards, but also recognizing that it's important to be able to be agile and to be adaptable so that you can, um, you can still do really, really good things. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the ways of getting around a big butt is having some experience or, even better, having those wonderful 21st century skills to call upon information or colleagues or people that do know something about the situation that can help you. Yeah. Do you maybe have a, an experience with that that you, you can share where, you know, you've come across a, a school or a system of schools or you're working in a new context that you yourself aren't very familiar with and so you've you know, used your 21st century skills to be able to call upon somebody else's expertise um, or to be able to tap into, as you've talked about, you know, case studies or research of something that's then empowered you to be able to, to navigate that and put something in place. Uh, yeah, well, this happens all the time because we are, um, in my current position, we're a global company. So we're constantly looking for 
any sort of expansion uh, that would involve local partners. And we re- recognize you, you can't do it without them. So we could bring some educational background, but we'd absolutely need somebody in the context to guide us, right? Um, so if you're moving into Egypt or Saudi Arabia or almost any country, you would need people that understand the local context. And for many years, I was working with the IB, uh, particularly with the regional council of the IB, and that was fascinating because it was in Asia-Pacific, and there were about 500 different schools that the Asia-Pacific office was overseeing at the time. And we used to go through different reports um, as we would meet twice a year. And the stories that were told from each country were were so different. And it was, you're through one curriculum organization with different schools and different countries in Asia-Pacific, which you think from you know, perhaps the outside that that should be kind of homogeneous in, in one way. But the stories and the challenges in each setting were just really different. Of course, there were some parallels with government regulations and things like that, but there was no time where we ever had one country report given where another country could say, yeah, same thing here. <laughs> it was always different. Yeah. And so wherever you go, context is uh, is king. Yeah, yeah. And, and having the sensitivity to that um, is really important. And going back to what you were saying earlier, the, the need to one, recognize that, and then two, to be able to navigate that by partnering with local, um, with locals who actually know and can navigate that context better than you, that collaboration is really, really important. Yeah. Do you know something else that, in terms of obstacles or the butts that can get in the way? If you're dealing with different educators around the world, and I'm sure it's similar in different contexts as well, it's not just education as a, as a profession, but oftentimes if people are coming from their own system, which is a relatively well-regarded system or certainly has its strengths, they often think that's the best system. In other ways, you can go into other parts of the world where maybe their educational system is struggling and they will be looking to other ones that uh, they think are sort of the pathway for them. And in both cases, there's almost a blindness. You know, the ones that would think that their educational system is superior probably aren't open to the idea that there's other possibilities out there for what is the best education. And I say that with with, um, some hesitation with the word best. And on the flip side, people that think their education system really just needs to learn from something from the outside, they're, they're equally wrong because there's almost certainly things that they could bring to any conversation, discussion, that could help inform other, other people as well. And I think that can be one of the obstacles that sometimes in front of educators, that people tend to think whatever system they're most familiar with, and there's a psychological biases behind this, right, that you will have a preference towards what you've invested your life towards. You, you will want to, want to feel that way, that you have done the right thing. And sometimes I wonder if that doesn't blind us a little bit or keeping a really open mind to other ways of doing things or incorporating things into our own context. Mm. That's really interesting because that blind spot, it's, it's like there's two sides to it, right? So the blind spot, in a way, is just being too, too black and white about it. Either, yes, I've, ha- I've had th- my education experience is the, the right kind, so let me just try to replicate that for the next group of kids. Or mine was so bad that I just want to replicate that one over there and just bring it whole hog. And in either case, it's that trying to replicate something 
completely without recontextualizing it or pulling it apart, that can be the pitfall. Exactly. And if you can get your communications down and your relationships with people, that you can open a door for a conversation where we're, we can start thinking differently, despite coming at it with, a, with fairly um, well-established beliefs, which may not be readily apparent to them how embedded those are. I imagine that that same um, that same thing would apply in different industries, right? Like it doesn't just have to be about education, but our experience with medical systems, our experience with a, a, any number of things. That blind spot of of trying to replicate something holistic, like completely without adapting it, is uh, is kind of a dangerous um, single route to to go down. Yeah, it's so true. And I think particularly in education, because context, I do believe, is, is just so important. So, I mean, whether it's your work, you know, with the IB Regional Council or now with GEMS or, you know, with the Global Citizen Diploma that we mentioned very briefly or any, any of the other work that you've done, have you seen either, like, hopefully successful examples of where that hasn't happened, where, you know, you you or as part of a team were able to navigate that blind spot by taking something that maybe was a good idea from your own experience, from some other experience, and then were able to sort of break that apart and, and take out the pieces that, that make sense for a new context and be able to adapt it um, successfully. Well, you did mention the, the Global Citizen Diploma, and I think that might be a nice example of a group of people coming together and really co-creating something that's very specific to a particular uh, community. So maybe can you give us a, a sort of your um, your brief summary of what it is for, for people who, obviously I've been involved, but like what, for those who are new sure. to it, what, what is the GCD? Yeah. Well, it was sort of, it started with this idea that if you look at schools today, you can see that in so many ways they've changed and that if you were to walk into, you know, particularly in the IB world, if you were to go into an IB classroom and you would see the kids working together using Inquire, it's concept-based. This is really very different than the educational system most of us educators went through, where it was really content-driven, teacher was in front, you were in rows. There'd be some immediate differences. But when you look at the transcripts and specifically the qualification at the high school level, it really hasn't changed much in decades. But the question had to be asked, we're these forward-looking institutions and we want to be in the business of developing young people so that they can graduate and go on and have a positive effect on the world and be happy and all these types of outcomes, then don't we need to really question what the qualification looks like? And shouldn't the qualification be different than predominantly just academic results? So why is it that we haven't looked at our qualification? And that was really the, the, the genesis of the, the conversations. And if you bring all these sort of thoughts together, we came up with this idea, well, what if they had a portfolio? What if they could create something online, digital portfolio, easy enough to share? It becomes part of them, part of their story, and trying to raise the profile of some of the, the non-academic things as well. So that was, that was really the, the idea behind the Global Citizens Diploma. And it's, it's really interesting because a lot of those 
um, the, the reasons it needed to be created, those reasons have been around for a long time, right? The, the transcript hasn't changed in decades. And I think a lot of educators have spent a lot of time thinking about this, researching this. And the transcript for a long time has been a huge barrier and a huge butt of like, oh, we can't possibly change that because the universities wouldn't recognize it or, or the parents would never go for it or so on and so forth. So maybe can you, can you talk to us through, you know, at its inception, I'm sure you came up across a lot of barriers to implementing something so different like a portfolio-based diploma. So maybe can you, can you share with me a little bit about some of those initial barriers that you came across when the GCD was first being developed and how you, you and the team managed to navigate those? You know, the first barrier was within us. And one mentor I had was Neil Richards. Still have, shouldn't say had. And uh, he was one who, who said, um, before, before we started this process, you guys should create your own diploma. And it was this moment where you just say, yeah, why, why couldn't we? What is in our way? When he said that, suddenly it jolts you and you think, I guess we could. Someone has to get these things going. <laughs> and so in a lot of ways, it's the classic, the biggest bud is actually us. It, it, it's, it's us self-limiting our thinking and what we can accomplish because of our own expectations of ourselves. Or we've, been, we've got this false perception that there's barriers in our way that simply don't exist. And so that was, that was one of the big ones. But then as we started unpacking it, you're right. We had to think about things like, what are the parents going to say? And what are the teachers going to say? And how does this affect the student workloads? But we just broke everyone down. And we just said, well, we believe in this philosophically. We think this is really important. And as we started developing some of the reasons why we might do it, next thing you know, we had some great messages for the parents. We had some great things we could take to the kids to get them on board with it. We had, again, a lot of the stuff would just transfer right over for the teachers. And as we go through the different audiences, we had the right message each one. It was all the same stuff. We would emphasize different things to different groups, depending on sort of their perspective. And I think that was also a really important way to overcome some of the butts, because the butts from the board would be very different than the butts coming from the students. They're different audiences. So how do you acknowledge the concerns or the opportunities they might be willing to jump at in a way that's very authentic? You're not changing the um, underlying sort of project that you're, you're moving forward with, but you are hearing a message for the audience based upon what their needs would be. And I think it's really interesting because it, it kind of echoes something we were talking about earlier when you were talking about adapting education to different contexts, right? A lot of it, it sounds, it's, it echoes this idea of like breaking down a big problem into its different component parts. There's one piece. And then another piece is perspective taking, right? Figuring out where is that other person or that other group or that other context, where's their starting point and what are their needs? And so then how do I communicate with them in such a way that it meets their needs? Because they're valid and dismissing them um, and just being sort of iconoclastically stuck to your um, vision of what is right doesn't get you very far. Yeah, it's so true. You know, one of the parallels with this is that if you're a good teacher, you differentiate a lesson, right? There's different ways you can differentiate. And sometimes as leaders, we forget that, is that there's people out there that are at different starting points that have different ways of processing things. So as a leader, just like a good teacher, you need to differentiate. 
often as leaders, we kind of just go down the middle. We make an announcement. We send an email. But that's, that's not always the best approach, I think, because it doesn't meet the, the people where they're at. And that's, I think that's such an interesting, um, one that's an interesting analogy as a, as a teacher to think about differentiation. And then I think it's, it's like an interesting tension point to being authentic and true to what it is that you're trying to do and to be able to adapt it to meet different people's needs. Because that can sometimes come across as manipulative or disingenuous, right? Like, oh, you're telling me one thing and you're telling them a different thing. And yet the, it sounds like you've found ways to be able to navigate that where you're still, you're still true, for example, in the GCD of what we're trying to do is to create an, a different kind of qualification that truly reflects the kind of learners um, that are graduating from our schools and I'm going to be able to deliver that message differently to different people so that they can have their concerns addressed. Yeah, and I think you're right to point out that notion that if you're sharing different things with different people, are people not going to think that, well, he's making part of this up? <laughs> so, but I think what you're doing is really sharing proportions in different ways. So, for example, uh, with the, the GCD, if you're going in front of a board, you need a full financial breakdown. How much would this cost? You need to spend a bunch of time on this because that is what the board needs to spend time on. If you're talking about it with a teacher audience, you should mention it. You should say, we've thought through the finances. It's, it's going to cost this much. And teachers actually would want to know that because what if you're taking resources away from another program? They fund it. So that's important, but it's a different message, right? And what the teacher's concerns might be would be different. For the students, don't think they'd be nearly as concerned about the, how the financial backings work, right? So all of this is taken true, but you don't need, or the audience don't need the same type of information because of who the audiences are. And I, and I think it's being very mindful about the audience needs around this. And again, the high level of transparency, but also valuing the perspectives of the different people and really respecting that, that they don't need to hear all the information. You want to you want to serve them well by giving them the right information that they need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a really interesting way to think about it, that it's it's transparency coupled with, you know, valuing people's perspectives and what part of it it is that they need to know about, not because you're trying to hide the other pieces, but because you are you're valuing what it is that they need to get out of it and you are serving them. So... I want to loop back to something that we were discussing a little bit earlier. This idea that, you know, oftentimes the biggest butts are within ourselves and couple that with the sort of blunt fact that we started our conversation with that even if we're bold and we dream big, there can sometimes still be really serious financial or resource constraints. So I'm wondering if you can share with us an example of how you got past the more tangible, perhaps, but of resource constraint. There was one fantastic book, Stephen Johnson, I think was the author, and it's Where Good Ideas Come From, and I read it a number of years ago. And one thing that surprised me so much, and there was consistency in the research around what a social um, enterprise creativity could be, that even some of the research scientists that we imagine in these, these uh, white lab coats um, working away on their own, trying to make these Nobel Prize winning discoveries, Often, if you go back through many of the notes in the process in which they've made discoveries, it's been when they've been doing debrief sessions with other scientists. They've been teasing out ideas together. And I find so often when we're dealing with an issue that we don't think we have resources for, if you can get the right people in the room and you can co-create 
different ways of approaching problems, you can come up with some wonderful solutions. And you know, one of the very early examples of my career, I was an IT director. And uh, this is back in the 90s. And so we're talking Dell computers uh, before when Apple was almost shut down. You know, this, they were going way back here. And um, I, I remember, I, I think I was teaching close to a full-time schedule. And I was an IT director at a school where all the computers were falling apart. And I didn't know how I was going to do this. But what I decided to do was um, I had these really eager students around me that were really capable. But I, I created a little uh, organization, and we actually had a hierarchy, and, and it was so wonderful, and they were so motivated that when we got new computers in, I could, on a Saturday morning, I could bring in 15 to 20 students to set up all the computers for me. And all it would cost me was ordering McDonald's for lunch, <laughs> right? which I was more than willing to pay, because otherwise I would have had to do it. And it was a classic way of which these kids got a better education than they would have got otherwise. And they just loved it, you know, taking new computers out of the box and all the rest. But I, I can't help but think that this was one of those classic examples where having no resources compels you to do something a little differently. And just to think differently about a problem, to tease it out with some people that were around me. And the uh, next thing you know, we found something that was much better than uh, just doing it in a regular way. So child labor as the solution. To- <laughs> I know I paid them in McDonald's, which now I feel guilty about because we know what's in there. But at the time, it was <laughs> it was some of the best money I had spent. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really, really great um, story, a really great example of in the face of, you know, personnel resource constraint, if you can tap into the creativity of the people around you, even, you know, kids and young people, um, then you can find like mutually beneficial um, solutions together. And that, that idea of, you know, putting half ideas together and just getting the right people in the room, um, that's a really powerful example of where that's, that's worked. Yeah, and I, I do think what you just said about the right people in the room. So I think that's the big thing as a, as a leader that I believe that so much is around communication and understanding the people around you and what their needs are and, and what they're, how they are trying to do their job. And how can you kind of assist in that? Yeah, yeah. And that's really echoed throughout our conversation, right? That mindset of needing to, to first understand and then respect what other people's needs and perspectives are and then working together with them to address that. Yes. So, yeah. But it's, a, just, it's a human business, right? It's just a human. <laughs> it's such a human thing. Mm-hmm. It applies to all relationships in so many ways, doesn't it? And it's, it's important to highlight because I think it's, it's easy to take it for granted, right? That like, here's, the, here's who I am and so I'm just going to present in this way. Or here's the thing that I'm trying to do and I'm just going to go for it as you, as you put, you know, down the middle. I'll just sort of take the middle track. Um, and that adaptability and agility is, is really crucial to being able to navigate different barriers that might come up. Yes. Gosh, you articulate things so well. Why, why, why are you interviewing me? It should be the other way around. Oh my gosh, this, this whole interview thing is like, it's, it's really, you know, all that cognitive... So then James and I got a bit carried away talking about the butts of creating this podcast and my learning journey as two education nerds are wont to do. And I didn't get a chance to thank him properly at the end of our conversation for his time and his insights. So let me do it now. Thank you, James, for chatting with me sharing your stories, and being a butt mover. 
And thank you for joining us on this episode of Butt Movers. I hope you have found James's stories and insights as interesting as I have. I learned a ton from James when he worked as my head of school, but this Butt Movers conversation helped me to learn even more. If you enjoyed this episode, please think of one friend who might also like it and send them the link now. Connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at ButtMovers, that's B-U-T Movers, or head over to ButtMovers.com for more on today's episode, including links to finding out more about the Global Citizen Diploma and finding out more about Stephen Johnson's book, Where Good Ideas Come From. Join us again in two weeks for the next episode. I am super excited to share with you a conversation with ButtMover, Jimena Dure. Jimena is the co-founder of the very first ride-sharing app in Paraguay, Move. During our conversation, she shares some inspiring stories about how Move has managed to not only bring ride-sharing to Paraguay, but fundamentally take on some seriously entrenched obstacles, like the local government and police, taxi companies, and, you know, that little app called Uber some of you may have heard of. I hope you'll join me next time. Until then, get out there and move those butts.